Hello everyone, it's November 9th, 2021. Blue Origin lost its lawsuit against NASA regarding HLS, so why not take a closer look to see what it all means? I for one am happy to see things moving forward again. Space is expensive enough without the legal fees, so let's get to it and lift off. the tower welcome to episode 333 of the orbital mechanics podcast i'm david i'm ben i know dennis dennis is off this week um but he did show up to record uh, his this week in spaceflight history that you'll be hearing later on in the show but i was not there so this is going to be like a little yeah. we're like we're all slipping in and out we're, we're dancing around just just follow the sound of my voice i'm going to be here the whole time i will guide you <laughs> i know generally that person is me but i right, right. it's totally my fault i i i don't know how i got the time zone wrong but we scheduled a certain time and i for some reason was thinking that i was one hour ahead I thought that I was recording locally at 10 o'clock when, in fact, it was supposed to be 8 o'clock, I think. Yeah, Jeez, I can't it was, even get it it was straight 9 now. Eastern. Yeah, so yeah, so that would be 8 a.m., and I did it backwards. But you will hear me probably in the beginning of that segment, and you'll definitely hear me at the yes. end, uh, but I'll be yeah. conspicuously missing in the middle. Yeah, yeah, it'd be nice. a, a nice little continuity <laughs> challenge yeah. for you editing. I think it'll be okay. Just a quick top of the show space news thing. Um, I did want to mention Starships, uh, not the Starship itself, but SpaceX has been delivering a lot of locks and I think liquid nitrogen as well, or maybe just locks actually, to um, its facility uh, in Boca Chica, like a lot. This is kind of, you know, put things into perspective as to what it takes to fuel a Starship because they have, what, like seven tanks in their tank farm and they have half of one filled maybe and they've already done like 74 truck deliveries. So... This Man. is taking some time. So what it takes to fill a Starship, at least a few hundred deliveries. And like, of course, that's like taking into account all of the boil off that happens right. as it's sitting in the tank. But like still, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty impressive. And I thought, and maybe this is something that they'll be doing, but I thought that they would be generating some of that locally. But uh, there might not just be enough room to do that. You know, I mean, you could extract it from the air, right? Or at least the liquid oxygen part. But I don't know if that can be done fast enough in right, order to, to keep up with attrition. The... Yeah. Right. So that's kind of an issue. So are they going to build like a pipeline or something? I don't know. But there's like a limit as to how much you can transport by road. And that's why they have to do it this way. So it just takes a lot of, you know, little truckloads. Um, I think the maximum amount is something like, I have to look at the thing, but it's not much. I mean, you can only transport so much uh, oh before, per truck per, okay. yeah per truck because there are certain limitations by the department of transportation uh looks like it's around 20 tons thereabouts yeah that isn't a lot is it and and so they're they're fueling up for their next starship launch not their uh super heavy launch uh that part i don't know it could be either one i don't know i, I know that they're also testing the tanks because they've never been filled before so they are putting liquid nitrogen in some of the lox tanks um, and that's probably just to you know make sure that everything's working and then they will they'll boil that off and then they'll fill them with lox instead but yeah the liquid oxygen is obviously there for a reason um and we'll have to see what that reason is yeah we haven't been keeping up exactly with the latest rumors with spacex have we so i don't know <laughs> i don't know yeah, what they're planning on doing but we de we definitely have some not spacex well no we got we have a spacex news item in the show today but we're going to continue on with our um lack of focus on spacex for this show i mean yeah. you know we're just we're, we're kind of just slaves to the news but <laughs> it's the way this is playing out all right so yeah let's talk about blue origin and it's failed court claim yeah. right it's federal court claim that was rejected so yeah no burying the lead that's <laughs> that's <Yeah>. it <laughs> 
the Federal Court of Appeals ruled in favor of NASA on Thursday. So that'd be uh, November the 4th if you're listening to this in the future. Um, I wanted to point out that the expedited schedule, because um, they were going to do a, a fast litigation style um, so they didn't have to hold up uh, SpaceX's HLS contract too long. The expedited schedule originally called for a ruling on the 1st of November. So three days late is pretty darn good. Like, that's that's pretty cool. But yeah, there it is. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's move on. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, so, yeah. So you said you uh, you tried to read this and you, you hate law. I Look, I got to agree. Law is... It's funny because uh, my partner, Corey, took a class on uh, civil uh, civil rights law. And it was so funny because she would come home from class and be like, this is so straightforward. Why does everybody pretend like law is so complicated? There, there are like very few rules that they follow and like all of the opinions and all the, the briefs, like everything is just like takes everything down to the simplest place that it can and there's no room for anything close to real thought (laughs) and i was just like that can't be true and then i started paying attention to law and no actually that's absolutely true but the hard part is that yeah it's all written out very plainly but still people it's it's the job of you know say a lawyer to tease out some of the more well i mean i I don't know how to put this i don't want to say find loopholes because that's not really what they're doing but you have but you have to argue i guess I don't know. Well, I don't know. What it really comes down to is your case law. Um, Looking at at previous cases that Mm -hmm. set out precedent and basically law just comes down like civil rights litigation and contract litigation like this. Like it, it just comes down to arguing about what words mean and arguing about what the case law means. And, and really the, the hard part of the job is, having a grasp on all the case law so that you can go and get the precedents that you want mm-hmm. within a reasonable period of time. And you don't have to go read, you know, everything that comes up in a search or, you know, read through all these, uh, uh, volumes that sit on the shelf. If you're, if mm-hmm. you're using hard copies. So, I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to like tell any lawyers listening that they're their job is ridiculous and easy and I could do it because that's absolutely not the case. But yeah, when it, when it comes down to like an individual case, it, it's pretty easy to, to actually just sit and read this stuff. Um, it, it takes a while to like parse out what they mean and, and go look at other reference material to see if what they're saying is correct. But that, that's where the hate comes in. <laughs> it's just like, mm-hmm. this is tedious. Not that it's, inaccessible or, you know, something that you can't go through. So I would encourage anybody who's curious about this stuff to go and actually like read the documents that have been published because they're long, but you know, you can see exactly what each side is saying, um, and kind of get a, at very least get a, um, a sample of the tone that everybody's using. Cause I think that's interesting, if not important. So with that, uh, with that said, uh, this week I took a little bit of time to go back through the BIA, the broad agency announcement, which was the, the request for proposals in this case, because Blue Origin's argument, um, comes down to a couple of things. But like one of the, one of the main things is that they object to the fact that SpaceX is going to be launching all of these tanker ships to, to actually fuel up, um, their moon bound, uh, starship. Uh, 
And Blue doesn't like the fact that the SpaceX isn't going to have to do a, a flight readiness review for every single one of their tanker flights. And like we, we've talked about this on the show before, but I wanted to go back into the BAA and actually look at what the requirements are and like, did they actually need to get a waiver? And was their awarding of a waiver um, improper? And like, obviously, this is what's at argument. Uh, the judge says, no, it wasn't improper. Blue Origin says, yes, it was improper. And my opinion means absolutely nothing in this. Mm-hmm. But let me let me bring you a little bit of the pieces that I put together to kind of form my own opinion. So the the BAA, I'll actually cite this. So this is in section 4.3.2. Um, if you are looking at the most recent revision on the uh, on the NASA uh, document uh, portal, uh, the, it's PDF page 23. So let me read um, a direct quote from one part of that section. This is just one one or two sentences that I pulled out, but I, I haven't changed anything. I'm just going to quote this. So it's going to be a little boring. While each offer's performance work statement and technical design proposal will be incorporated into the contract at time of award if awarded a base CLIN, NASA will work with each ALS contractor during the base period to arrive at a unique, final set of agreed-to HLS specifications and standards that each contractor will be required to meet if the contractor's option A CLIN is exercised. So <laughs> basically, this BAA is a a non-competitive BAA. They aren't doing direct comparisons between each uh, contractor. Um, They are looking at each contractor and saying, are you good enough? Is your value, you know, cost to value ratio reasonable? Um, And then making decisions. And, And like, obviously they only made one, one selection, but in an ideal world, they would select as many as were appropriate. And I, I believe it was just up to three contractors and then they would down select from there. But like that, you know, they wouldn't be making comparisons until they until the number of acceptable proposals exceeded the number of slots that they were able to hand out. And so um, here they're, they're saying that, you know, here are here are all the things that we want. And there are some requirements, but the requirements are all for the proposals themselves. You have to include this bit of information. You have to include that bit of information. But for the HLS requirements, like the technical stuff, um, here's what we would like to see, but we're willing to work with you um, to find a, a, a unique final set of agreed to specifications. Like that's what it says, a unique set um, for each contractor. So, when Blue Origin is saying that that they take exception to SpaceX being allowed to get these waivers, what it really comes down to is Blue and the national team didn't want to fly multiple tankers, and therefore they did not ask for FRR waivers on those tanker flights. So what's the problem? <laughs> you didn't ask for it, you didn't get it. But uh, Blue insists that it, if they knew that they could have gotten a waiver, they would have designed an entirely different architecture. Um, so, right. Would this architecture have been different enough to be a, a lander as large as spaceship or as large as starship and so large that it required multiple tankers? I, I don't buy that argument. I don't yeah. think that Blue Origin, uh, if they knew that they could fly as many vehicles as they wanted without FRRs, would have built starship. Like, <laughs> 
Additionally, if SpaceX was designing a vehicle just for HLS, as opposed to taking a, a previously designed vehicle and applying it to the HLS structure or the HLS framework, I don't think that SpaceX would have done so either. I think they would have flown some version of Dragon that would have launched on one or maybe two flights. Um, it, it doesn't seem reasonable uh, when, when Blue Origin says that they would have uh, designed an entirely different architecture. I, I don't think that's reasonable. And I don't know if this was them being caught unawares, but like they only said that they would have designed a different architecture once the once the court. I don't remember if it was a quarter, if it was NASA said, Hey, you didn't ask for it. Um, you, you didn't need it. You didn't ask for it. Um, and they said, well, if we would have known, we would have done this. And it's just like, come on, you know, you wouldn't have. And on top of that, you knew that you could have asked for it because 4.3.2 says you could have. <laughs> it doesn't specifically say FR waivers can be negotiated. It says we're going to work with you to find a unique set of specifications. So kind of like, well, you know, it, you, you decided not to take a risk and, and ask for, uh, a departure from the expected. And so your lack of risk taking paid off in that you didn't get the, uh, the increased rewards that the risk brought along with it. I don't know. Yeah. Well, it seems that like if what you say is true, that 4.3.2 does like specify that you don't need to ask for or that you can ask for a waiver, right? Then that should be the end of the argument, which I guess mm -hmm. it is because I mean, you know, like ignorance is not an excuse, right? Like it is written there. So I don't know what their argument is. I, d I don't know what Blue Origin is asking for. Right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So looking at Blue's original lawsuit, well, so like I'm looking at this because this is all I have access to. Um, the actual ver, the actual, uh, opinion that was issued, um, is currently not available to the public. They hopefully will have a redacted version available later this month, but they're having to go to all involved parties and get recommendations for what to redact. So it, it's going to take a little bit, but like I'm hungry to read that opinion because yeah, I, I would love to know if the opinion says ignorance is not an excuse, but uh, I went back and look at, at blue uh, the, the original blue lawsuit um, because it's really long and I've like, I've perused, right. I've kind of, Oh, actually perused. I think traditionally, Today, it means to glance through, but I think originally the word peruse meant to dig deep in and read every little bit. But in the modern sense, I, I did peruse their lawsuit when it first came out and I, I went through it again, uh, just cause like I, I still can't get it through my head what they're arguing and reading the lawsuit. It's, it's kind of disjointed. So it, it, their argument pivots around two issues as best I can tell. First, that the waiver was unfair. And second, that, um, that SpaceX got an opportunity to negotiate a lower price. And the thing is that those two things are disconnected, right? That they, they are two potential reasons that, that something improper happened here, but, but they're not inherently tied together. But the lawsuit bounces back and forth between them trying to make them connect. And I don't think it's particularly successful. So what they say is that SpaceX's proposal um, was not suited to the BAA. It was unawardable. 
and it should have been rejected. And then they say SpaceX was able to get a waiver to the FRR requirement, but Blue Origin says that uh, SpaceX got that waiver after the selection was made and not before the selection was made. And, and that seems like a really trivial difference. But the key here is that this BAA is a non-competitive request for proposals. It is a firm fixed price uh, sort of thing. And so the the laws around how you do that, if you're going to do this kind of thing, you can't then go make the make the proposers compete for it. So you can potentially violate federal like procurement law if you have a non-competitive selection that you then turn into a competitive one. So before and after the selection makes a difference. If you do it after the selection, then Blue Origin says that's a negotiation. And suddenly now we're we're put in competition with each other because um, now, you know, potentially we are negotiating back and forth trying to find who can give the lowest bid. Um, but if it's made before, then the law says that, you know, if you have a, uh, you know, a, a negotiation kind of discussion with one contractor, you have to have it with all the contractors. And so they're saying this, you know, you have to pick one or the other. That is, is what Blue Origin says. I don't know if I agree with this. I, I, I just don't know enough about the, the procurement law. So, so they're saying that if this was a truly uh, competitive procurement, uh, a negotiated procurement, um, then this sort of action might have been legal, but it wasn't. And they're, they're saying that it, it wasn't a competitive procurement procedure on like a prima facie sort of basis. Like they actually say, uh, that's that NASA defined it as one thing and then acted as if it was another thing and that they can't just define it and that sets what it is. The type of procurement that this is, is based on the, the actual actions taken, um, right? Prima facie is like on the face of it. And so they're saying like, clearly they're treating this as different than they said they were. And so that makes NASA culpable. So one of the great things is that the Blue Origin lawsuit, uh, to, to back this up, to, to back up the idea that um, SpaceX's proposal was uh, unawardable. They actually quote the BAA. Um, they quote section 5.3.1.3. But I went and read 5.3.1.3. And earlier in, the, in that section, uh, it says, if multiple proposals have been otherwise evaluated relatively similarly, the SSA may consider the availability of funds to make award decisions. And they, they don't address that in their lawsuit. But I guess what they're saying is that, um, that gets thrown out because of what type of selection process this was. But like, I, I don't, I don't think that's true. Like, I think the document says what it says. NASA followed the document that they put out. And now Blue Origin uh, wants to define terms in ways that are favorable to it and say, well, you didn't comply with my definition of the terms. And actually, now now that I'm saying this, really, <laughs> this is... Um, this is basically the same thing as linguistic prescriptivism as opposed to linguistic descriptivism. They are prescribing what these terms mean instead of looking at how these terms are used and then adapting their description to the actual use. Um, 
I don't, I don't know if that's a very helpful comparison, but that's how it just clicked in my head. Well, that seems to be how most of law is argued, actually. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that I think is actually a good description of what I was trying to say is that, you know, that's kind of what a good lawyer will do is that, you know, they'll take the words and then they'll say, well, is this what it means or is this really what it means? And then they'll try to make an argument that it means, like, are you in favor of their interpretation of the law, which I guess is what the practice of law is all about, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. But but that yeah. that would that would still be descriptive, wouldn't it? Because if, if you had, you know, case law that said that, you know, a, a, a tomato is a fruit, um, it doesn't matter if a tomato is actually a fruit. You can say, look, this is how the words are being used in case law. And so while there's a botanical definition for fruit, um, that's not the definition that, that has been used in the precedent up to this point. Um, and so that's very descriptive. And I don't think that's exactly what's happening here. I think Blue Origin has decided what these terms are going to mean. And they try to be descriptive by, um, by explaining why that's what they think, but they don't actually provide any, as far as I can tell, they don't provide any actual precedent that says this is what these words mean. They just say, we want these words to mean this. And so we're going to, um, argue that if you don't use these words the same way that you're wrong. And again, like blanket disclaimer, I know nothing. This is, this is me reading, uh, documents that are longer than my attention span and, and doing my best to interpret them. But I don't think my intention here is to convince anybody that this is what's happening. I think my intention is to convince people that it's worth reading these things and coming, uh, to your own understanding because like this could be really interesting. Um, depending on who you are and what your interests are, this could be something that you find worthwhile to read. Yep. Well, well, that was cool. You got to play space lawyer for 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the opinion coming out because I think that's going to be a much more definite yeah. place to, uh, to, to come to conclusions because, you know, it's hard to disagree with somebody when the court agrees with them. You know, if I can just say what the court decided, uh, if I can say the same thing that the court said, then you basically can't, uh, can't argue with my opinion. <laughs> All right, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Ben, what is the first one? All right, Dragons Passing in the Night. Shane Kimbra, Megan MacArthur, Tama Pesquet, and Aki Hoshide have spent nearly 200 days in space, and they're coming home a little sooner than we might have expected. Instead of waiting for Crew 3 to arrive at station before Crew 2 departs, NASA has announced that they will have returned to Earth on the 7th, the day before this episode airs. Crew 3 was originally scheduled to launch on Halloween, but it was pushed back due to a minor medical issue and abort zone weather conditions. It is now planned to launch November 10th and will feature an all-welded urine storage tank, which is a solution for the leak discovered after Inspiration 4's return. This link was also determined to have happened on Crew 2's vehicle, uh, and they will not have access to the toilet during their 18-hour return flight. And then next up, Shijian 21 has a companion. The recently launched Shijian 21 space debris mitigation satellite by China now appears to be orbiting alongside an object in geostationary orbit. The object has been cataloged by the U.S. Space Force as an Apogee kick motor, 
but this has not been confirmed. The object may also be part of China's debris mitigation tests, serving as a test for refueling and other proximity operations. However, it could also be part of potential counter-space operations tests. As China has given very few details on Shijin 21's on-orbit operations, the unknown object will continue to be monitored for signs of active propulsion, which would thus indicate an active rather than passive object. All right, and finally, a Chinese Mars sample return mission. Tianwen-1 has only been on the Martian surface since May, and the Planetary Exploration of China program has already announced architecture details on their next mission. Tianwen-2 was originally hinted at last year after Chang'e 5's return of lunar regolith. This will be a sample return mission that is a scaling up of the agency's ambitions, both in terms of science products and complexity. The agency's first two-part planetary mission will feature a lander-slash-ascent vehicle launched on a Long March 3B, as well as an orbiter-slash-return vehicle launched on a Long March 5. In keeping with the preliminary announcement, Tianwen-2 is planned to launch as soon as 2028. We'll have to wait and see if the NASA-ESA joint MSR mission will be able to launch in 2026, and we'll also have to wait to see how close this space race becomes. Okay, stand by. We're looking at it. Questions, comments, and correction burns. You may have a slight, uh, what I think is a genuine correction from what no, this Ben Hallert. Th- this is Ben Hallert, and and his tweet starts out by saying, "Not necessarily correction, but a funny juxtaposition." So now we're doing questions, comments, corrections, and juxtapositions. Um, I guess yeah, this is more of a juxtaposition or a funny juxtaposition. Um, he said that we said the orbital reef space station was expandable, like all space stations. Yet minutes later, we're referencing Starlab. What I think may be a very non-expandable space station. So yeah, um, Starlab is very non-expandable. So what I thought he was talking about, just to say really quick, was I thought that I had said that all space stations are modular, which is a different word, obviously. But in fact, that's also not correct because a space station like Skylab was just one piece of equipment. So I was thinking more like the, you know, the International Space Station or Mir, but there are much smaller ones that are just, you know, single units. So actually, no, they're they're not all modular and they're not all expandable either. Yeah. And and so Starlab is going to be launched on on a single vehicle. And like that's one of the draws is that you know it's a it's a one and done kind of station and so um ben interprets that as it being non-expandable uh although i think that's backed up by the fact that um that it only has one docking port but Mm -hmm. like yeah only having one docking port is is pretty non-expandable but like seriousness aside right like we're just joking but like, as soon as you plug a crew vehicle in, it's been expanded. <laughs> so true, but I that's think, not a. But a crew vehicle could never be part of the station because I think right. the definition. But of I mean, who's, station, who says that you can't put another module on there and then and then plug your your crew capsule into the other end of that? I I think the only uh, non-expandable space station that I have ever heard of would have been MOL, the the manned orbiting laboratory, which had no docking ports at all. That, <laughs> that would be non-expandable. I think, mm-hmm. I think this is, uh, poorly suited to expansion, but you know, well, sure. You, yeah. Chris in the chat says, uh, you could fly a module with two docking ports on and suddenly, you know, you can, uh, you can branch this thing off. I, I don't think it's well suited to it just because the, uh, the way that the power is on the opposite side of a inflatable structure and like, you know, inflatable structures aren't floppy by any means, but it just seems like maybe that's not 
the the best way to transmit any physical forces uh, right. through the station. But like, yeah, like uh, uh, you're right. That is a funny juxtaposition. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, te- technically speaking, this is definitely, in my opinion, technically speaking, this is not the definition of non-expandable. <laughs> yeah, this is. Uh, one docking port away from that definition. <laughs> All right, so let's do this week in space flight history. We have just one winner, Chuba Turkozy. So congratulations. The clue was parietal eye in the sky, and I didn't know what that meant, but uh, I guess he did. So what is the parietal eye in the sky, and uh, what is the event? So good job getting the clue uh, for the event, which was on the 9th of November, 1970, and it was the launch of the orbiting frog Otolith. There's something about Otolith. I know you're more biologically inclined than I am, and so maybe you just think of like what an Otolith actually is, but I keep thinking like monolith. And so I just, yeah, no, no, no. It, it sounds like a geological term, doesn't it? It actually comes from that. Uh, the lith uh, is lithosphere. Um, it's basically uh, these little rocky or, you know, rocky-like little nuggets at the base of the hairs that reach out into the gelatinous stuff that is your vestibular system. So you're right. Yeah, I mean, yeah got it, got it, got it. Rock, rocky-like, uh, what'd you call nuggets, nuggets in the gelatinous? <laughs> yeah, got cool. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah, all makes, all makes total sense. Um, yeah. For, for any biologist listening, I apologize in advance. <laughs> yeah, so. and like, uh, what is the otolith? Uh, experiment going to the FOIP. The FOIP. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what is the FOIP? It's the primary payload. It's the frog otolith experiment package. Okay. And so this is essentially sending two male bullfrogs into space in a centrifuge. And I did not know, right? We're always talking about the weights of things. And I did not know what the weight of a bullfrog is, but they are. About 350 grams a piece or 0.7 pounds, which is frankly. Yeah, those are small bullfrogs. No, those are, those are very small bullfrogs in my experience. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, so how is FOWIP? Is that how it's pronounced? FOWIP? My my brain would say FOWIP just because that's very similar to a internal acronym at my college, uh, F-O-A-P, while this is F-O-E-P. I really think it should just be pronounced as a bullfrog would pronounce it. (laughs) That really works too well. Yeah. (laughs) I know. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of upsetting how well that works. (laughs) And, and, and while Wikipedia refers to it as just the foe, uh, some of the, uh, the, the NASA press kit calls it the, the foe. Yeah, the oh, put in the P. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And so right then and there, I can explain what the clue is, right? The parietal eye in the sky. And that uh, parietal eye is, and again, I apologize, biologists out there. It, it's essentially a pseudo eye that a lot of amphibians and lizards have in between their proper eyes, where it's really just a photosensor on your noggin. Um, and it just helps with their thermoregulation and other biological features like that. And so parietal eye in the sky was just referencing the fact that we had frogs in space. Now, this FOP would be monitored for five days, and they put them in a centrifuge so they could experience half a G acceleration, uh, which you would get from uh, 50 rotations per minute. And why do that? Uh, to study the vestibular or inner ear system. And so here, orbiting frog otolith, what on earth is an otolith? Our brains go to monoliths, like, uh, there's, at least my brain does, as though we're going to put some... I don't know, like a frog monolith in space. Like there's, I'm just thinking 2001 a space odyssey with frogs, but indeed it's black. It's shiny. It's in space. It looks like a frog. (laughs) Exactly. The otolith cells are essentially 
sensors uh, that are part of that inner ear system. And so the idea was to understand the effect on biological creatures like humans, for example. Uh, frogs were chosen because frogs, while they're quite different from us <laughs> uh, overall, they have similar vestibular systems. Right? There's a lot of uh, critters that can be used as models for different parts of human anatomy and physiology. They wanted to understand, among other things, disorientation due to weightlessness. And uh, you might be thinking now, though, this was 1970. Didn't we already send humans into space? Well, this was planned earlier than that, uh, before we had humans mm -hmm. on longer duration uh, Apollo, or rather, Gemini missions were really the first long duration ones. Uh, well, I guess some of the Mercury's got pretty long, didn't they? There, there were some that were there uncomfortably a number of days. Yeah, I mean, but, you know, it's a Mercury, so uncomfortable is a, is a relatively short amount of time. But, yeah, I, I think they got up to five or seven days, something like that. Sorry, sorry. Um, no, uh, I was thinking Gemini. Uh, Mercury, the longest duration mission was um, MA9, mm. uh, the, the Faith 7 vehicle, and that was one day, 10 hours. Okay. Um, yeah. So, like, that really just goes to tell you um, how incredibly uncomfortable these things get very quickly. Yeah. Just spending 24 hours in, or 25 hours. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, uh, ten hours, uh, thirty thirty four hours, uh, really just puts a puts a cramp in your backside. I can only imagine. And and I I had heard a a wonderful story. It's, I guess it's not so much a story, but just an opinion that the the toughest space flight any humans ever endured, Jim Lovell's Gemini flight, was almost two weeks. I think it was something like thirteen days or something crazy like that, which had to be the biggest endurance thing because they were in a Gemini capsule, which. Is essentially gives you the space of <laughs> two Mercuries. Uh, yeah, that was that was Gemini Seven, Borman and Lovell. Mm. And yeah, thirteen days, eighteen hours. Yeah, and, and and what's crazy is like up to that point, the longest duration U.S. human spaceflight mission had been Gemini Five, which mm. was like seven days. Oh wow! Uh, so to to go from seven days to two weeks and just like know that you are far beyond your capabilities <laughs> <laughs> that that is wild i i heard that 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 opinion came from a life support systems guy and so i can understand why mm. he would think that was the most impressive yeah. kind of mission we had done yeah uh but you know fro frogs are a lot smaller and, and don't get quite so cramped yeah. and, and evidently these are small even when it comes to bullfrogs so they were uh the package the fope the, the frog otolith experiment package was delivered to the launch vehicle only five hours before launch, and it took uh, one hour to install. And so it was really last minute there. They actually had a few dozen frogs up to like a day or two before, which they would then narrow down to a dozen frogs, and they basically picked out the lucky two uh, frogonauts, essentially, <laughs> uh, <laughs> at the last uh, minute, uh, it sounds like. So because it was a little too light for the rocket, that it was going to be sent up on, they attached a, they had a secondary payload, which is also interesting uh, in its own right. And this is still early on. And so these kind of measurements were very important. It was the RM1 or radiation meteoroid package. And so essentially it had two things. It was going to measure uh, radiation, right? How many electrons and protons are cruising uh, through, or how, what is the flux of electrons and protons that you're experiencing or that <laughs> the payload is experiencing? Uh, this is still important because we need to characterize this for humans up there. And they had a different type of system, a different measurement that likely was more accurate. And uh, they'd be able to uh, better factor into their models for the type of radiation that humans would receive. 
uh, especially for longer duration Apollo missions. And it also was there to measure meteoroids, right? The little pieces of uh, space rock before they become meteors by passing through the atmosphere. We call them meteoroids. What I liked about this that I thought was interesting is that I'll talk about the rocket. It was a Scout B, which is a four-stage, uh, all-solid motor uh, launch vehicle. But this uh, RM-1 uh, payload stayed attached to the fourth stage. So in a sense, it was... 30 inches in diameter and also five and a half feet long. <laughs> and uh, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so much, much bigger than the FOPE. What it mainly consisted of was a solar cell array that wrapped around the stage in a donut-like fashion. Which is really just to say that it went around the fourth stage uh, yeah. to power it, uh, which and what w it was powering was essentially an electronics package that also was toroidal around the uh, payload fitting that reached through essentially and uh, connected the FOPE to the fourth stage, right? So if you understand that, the FOPE is going to go on uh, and separate and do its own thing while the uh, RM1 is going to remain attached to the fourth stage. And so they had to have that payload fitting essentially punch through the electronics package of the RM1 so it could attach to the FOPE and then release it. Yeah, I mean, that that's... It's a little weird to not just stack them one on top of the other, but like, especially for this era, it, it makes a lot of sense. Mm. Now, the FOPE itself was also 30 inches in diameter, uh, but not quite as long, <laughs> not being an entire stage. Uh, and it's 47 inches long, 293 pounds. Oh, oh, so, so if it's also 30 inches in diameter, then it is actually stacked on top of, uh, RM1. It's just that it, it's, adapter like the actual structural connection goes through rm1 i see what you're saying okay yeah sorry yeah it's it's sitting on top oh, that's of weird. rm1 but it's not actually attached to rm1 the way the uh the fope looks is it it has an octagonal base with electronics and then the upper part is a truncated cone with a spherical cap so it looks like a little like yeah. a little christmas light bulb kind of and sure yeah and and, and it, it contains you know the frogs it's it's essentially yeah, a water was there a payload fairing around this or was it shaped like that as as a aerodynamic feature good question it has the look if you look at a scout b i wasn't able to find images uh -huh. i don't know if there's images out there in the first place uh that there was a uh of the scout b that actually took the uh the, the frog spacecraft yeah. but it does look like what you typically see is the 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 payload fit, uh, fairing or the shroud for yeah. for scout missions, which are, which again is this bulbous sort of. It looks like the t looks like a big Christmas light essentially, Christmas light bulb, and so and it also had the the, the these black and white stripes uh, uh, running vertically along its side, which also seems consistent with these old '60s and '70s yeah. launches where <laughs> things look like that, but. Yeah, and I mean, and it, and it was, you know, for thermal protection, so I can imagine that it, it really was uh, set up that way, to, to, to be uh, not within its own covering. Yeah, the it's it's got those four booms that come out, which may, since they fold up towards the tip of the payload, it makes me think that, yeah, they would have had a fairing around it, because those guys really would have been... Yeah, now that you're saying that. And, and, you know, it's pretty rare to have solar panels exposed, even if they're fixed to the to the perimeter like this. So I'll, I'll bet that there was a payload fairing, but I, I, I could swear that I've seen Scout B launches without a payload fairing, with, a, with an exposed payload, kind of like uh, Atlas Agena. You know how, like, mm. Agena was often just the payload. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, right, that some of the earliest 
uh, ones were like that too. But I feel I feel like some of the yeah. earliest like uh, probes that were very very rudimentary that we sent up there didn't really have shrouds necessarily. But but given given the external components, right? <laughs> like you said, the booms. There there are these four booms, and there's these uh, also uh, some antennas. I mean, yeah, it it must have been within a uh, a fairing uh, to protect those during launch during ascent. But the the FOP itself though had this uh, black and white pattern for thermal control on orbit. And essentially, right, it was a water-filled centrifuge that you had your two little frogs uh, kind of back-to-back. Uh, you can almost think of them as the, the cover of Contra uh, for, for Nintendo, uh, that the cover of that game, the box art. <laughs> and uh, just picture frogs doing that instead and going on their way to space. And uh, yeah. And so what, what happened when we launched this thing? So, that, so, so that's the package. And uh, the launch, as I alluded to before, was uh, a Scout B. Uh, serial number 174C, and it launched from Wallops, uh, launch area 3A. So really sad David isn't here to, uh, you know, it brings a tear to his eye, I'm sure, every time we talked about Wallops launch. And uh, yeah, and so Scouts, they've been around for ages. They launched from the 1960s to the 1990s. Um, towards the end, uh, they stopped launching them from Wallops and were launching them more from Vandenberg. But, you know, it's a Obviously, that's a multi-decade, very long history there. And so these were solids on top of solids on top of solids. And so it's a, it was four stages, this particular configuration. And just here's some great names. It it, it had a Algol 2, great star names, Algol 2 uh, yeah. first stage, uh, which uh, not an Algol 2, but uh, an earlier version of an Algol is what took the little Joes to go and uh, yeah. test those out. Uh, it had a Caster 2 second stage, Caster's... We still have to this very day, uh, and in Terry. Yeah, it's a, it, we we you never see them this low in the stack. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, now they're <laughs> yeah they're, they they've uh, what they've been promoted. I guess <laughs> if you're a rocket stage, is that how it works? You want to be the uppermost stage? I guess yeah. Depends on if you're uh, into falling or not. And the third stage was an Antares two, uh, which is very different from the launch vehicle, uh, the Antares. And finally, the Altair three is the uppermost stage, the one that was physically attached to the RM1 and essentially part of that uh, experiment. And uh, if you don't recognize that name, uh, it also has has been called a, a burner stage with a capital B. Um, so you might be more familiar with that uh, terminology. And so the launch, uh, again, was on November 4th uh, at 0600 UTC, and it was placed into a 313 uh, to 590 kilometer orbit with 37.7 degree inclination. After about eight minutes of burning, to give you a sense, I, I, I kind of wanted to look up when I saw that there was a launch sequence in the press kit. I never really had a good idea of these many stage smaller rockets and how long they burn for. And so mm -hmm. if you were curious, the first stage burnt for 76 seconds, uh, the second stage 42 seconds, the third stage 35 seconds, and the fourth stage 33 seconds. So about a minute and a half, 40 seconds, 30 seconds, and 30 seconds. Man, that's that's a fast ascent. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's all that, about business. That hurts. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the frogs were totally immersed in water. And so that was a good buffer for keeping them happy and okay. It seems like they were in a bit of a net, too, uh, uh, within the mm -hmm. water because uh, th there was a membrane. Yeah, like a little a little packet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's part of the life support system, even uh, to act as a filtration, because they were going to shed skin. Mm -hmm. They were going to need, you know, oxygen in the water for them to be happy and uh, healthy. And so, yeah. So this thing is very quickly right <laughs> taken to orbit. 
And uh, then a yo-yo uh, D-spin assembly slows it down to zero uh, uh, RPM, essentially. That's the, the whole point of it, because the fourth stage is spin-stabilized. And so you, if you have a centrifuge, you want the centrifuge to be doing the spinning, not <laughs> the <Right>. stage <laughs> to be doing that for you. Afterwards, though, after the, uh, the FOPE is released and you've got the RM1 left behind with the fourth stage doing its own thing, um, you still will have that spinning on the FOPE. And so then four large booms deploy uh, out to 78 inches from the spacecraft. And that large moment of er inertia really slows it down to the point where the rotation is as little as 0.001 G um, or one thousandth of a G. And so now the centrifuge can really control the rotation that you want, because after all, you are doing an experiment uh, and you want to be able to control for that variable. Oh, and one thing I didn't realize about yo-yo uh, spin assemblies, I guess it was obvious, but... Uh, after you, <laughs> after you use them, right? <laughs> you then uh, cut them. You then release them. Typically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't, don't want these <laughs> these weights <laughs> uh, swinging around there like that. Yeah, right. You you want a rocket, not a tetherball. Yeah. Pole. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and I think I think actually just the act of of cutting those tethers actually slows your rotation down a little more as you like put all of that energy. Well, I don't know if a little more is the right way to put it, but like you put all of your rotational momentum into the the weights and then they move outward. But since you're one unit, you still have all that rotational energy. So you have to cut them so that you can actually get rid of that energy yeah. um, and you convert your rotational energy into a lateral acceleration they, for these they, things. They carry away the angular momentum, I think. is Yeah. Yeah. And if you left them attached, I mean, if you were to coil them back up, you would wind up spinning at the exact same speed. So, exactly, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Because when they are released, you still have that angular momentum, but it's just a low mm -hmm. rotation rate because of the large moment of inertia. So when you get rid of them, you've now gotten rid of the rotation right. rate and the angular momentum yeah. itself. So there's yeah, exactly. no, I guess, yeah, concern about accidental spin up again. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good way to put it. So, yeah, so when on orbit, uh, our frogonauts essentially went through these eight-minute cycles that were spaced depending on which phase of the mission. Again, this was a you know five-day-long uh, primary mission. They underwent these eight-minute cycles where you had one minute with no acceleration, uh, again, rotational uh, acceleration, uh, and then eight seconds of building up to the uh, half a G that they wanted, and then 14 seconds at that constant half a G, and then eight seconds to slow it down, back to zero approximately, and then six minutes to look at after effects. And so the idea was that you had these electrodes that were measuring the signals coming from the frog's vestibular system, and what effect was weightlessness versus acceleration versus going back to weightless, weightlessness having and also over a longer baseline than just these eight minute cycles. And the ultimate outcome was it was a successful mission, which is good. Those frogs went up there for, for good reason. They remained healthy during the duration of the mission. Data was taken. Uh, there were only two minor malfunctions related to the canister pressure and the temperature, but that didn't materially affect any of the results. And, you know, I don't you know, I didn't look at the paper, you know, any of the research that came out of it itself. But one thing is easy to wrap your brain around enough is that the vestibular response changes that they had, ultimately, some of them went away by the last 10 to 20 hours of flight. So in other words, the frogs were getting mm. more acclimated yeah. to this weightlessness, which you know, is an important thing. And even though this flew in 1970, after we had put at least 
you know, one Apollo mission. I mean, we had put humans on the moon, and this was right in November 1970. So uh, I'm guessing this was before Apollo 13, but after Apollo 12. No, it was even after Apollo 13. Yeah, so it was after 13, before 14. And so uh, uh, great job to those unnamed heroes that were sent up there. And that was your spaceflight event. No, I, I don't think they were unnamed. I think I think bullfrogs... Um by default or what's that dancing the uh warner brothers oh. frog? <laughs> hello my baby hello my darling <laughs> yeah what's his name uh michigan j frog yeah i think <laughs> i think bullfrogs by default are named michigan j frog michigan j a <laughs> michigan j a <and> michigan <laughs> j b good job ah <laughs> oh, thank you dennis that was really good okay so next week is the 16th through the 22nd of november David, do you have a clue for us? Hello, I'm back. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have a clue. Uh, the clue is for next week in 1973. I refuse to work under these conditions, or at least my stomach does. <laughs> so that is your clue. All right. If you have a guess as to what event uh, David is is uh, refusing to work through. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. Uh, if you have a guess, uh, shoot us a tweet with a hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck, everybody. Good luck. All right, so let's do upcoming spaceflight events. We got five different events. What is the first event? Yeah, so we already talked about this, but Crew 3 is going to be flying. So, of course, this is going to be flying on top of a Falcon 9 Block 5, and on board will be um, Chari, Marshburn, Marer, and Baron. So that's going to be lifting off from SLC-39A on November the 11th. That's Thursday at 0203 hours UTC. And then you can follow that up with coverage of the uh, docking and rendezvous, which will be happening um, the next day if you're in Eastern time. Um, so in Eastern time, that's also happening on November 11th. But in Eastern time, the launch would have happened the day before. <laughs> so mm -hmm. sorry to jump around time zones here and be a little confusing. But uh, if you want to watch um, the docking, uh, that will be on NASA TV on Thursday the 11th at uh, 710 p.m. Eastern time. The hatch opening is scheduled for 845 a.m. Eastern time. And then the welcoming ceremony is at 920 Eastern time, uh, all on NASA TV. And then also on the 11th, uh, we have the... We have an electron launch with uh, Love at First Insight, a very cool mission. So this is two Black Sky Gen 2 high-resolution multispectral Earth observation satellites. Yeah, and again, like such a cool name. I love that. Love at First Insight. Uh, they pick the best names. Uh, so that'll be launching at 0425 UTC. And once again, that's on the 11th. And they're launching from Onanui Station. Uh, and that's on the Mahia Peninsula in New Zealand from Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1A. So check that one so out. Pretty. Yeah. Got so many pretty launch sites. I just love it. Okay. After that, we have another Starlink mission. Um, so this is Starlink 4-1. Uh, and it's a full complement of, uh, 60 Starlinks, uh, all going up to, you know, do their telescope blocking thing. I don't, I don't want to be too negative. <laughs> I was just looking for a joke. Couldn't find one and I went negative. All right. So this is a, 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 a two hour long window. Um, it runs from Friday, November 12th at 1116 hours UTC to 1316 hours UTC. As you might expect, that is flying out of uh, Slick 40 because 39A 
will still be recycling. And then on the 16th, we have the launch of uh, Avega with Ceres. Ceres is a French acronym that stands for a, um, some kind of a space-based signal intelligence system. So this is basically, looks like some kind of a military... Yeah, signal intelligence. Signal intelligence. Uh, so if you know what that means, that's what that is. Um, it's launching on the 16th at 0927 UTC. So that looks to be an instantaneous launch window. And it's launching from Kourou in uh, French Guiana from the pad launch area one. So check it out. Uh, and then finally, this is this is not a spaceflight event uh, per se, uh, but NASA has this show called Edge or NASA Edge. And it's uh, like part unscripted conversation, part pre-recorded interview kind of thing. Uh, it looks really cool. I haven't watched any of them myself, but I want to. I think I'm going to have to go uh, make sure that those make it into my YouTube sub subscriptions. Uh, so NASA Edge is doing an episode early next week um, about the laser communications relay demonstration mission. Um, and this caught my eye because David loves laser communications. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't? Uh, but it, in my head, he's particularly associated with a love of laser communications. And so he, what they're going to be doing is talking to, um, some of the, uh, some of the primary people on that mission. Uh, and I'm assuming talking about how it was built and construct, you know, how it was designed and then, uh, how it's been performing. It, it looks like it's going to be really interesting. So uh, I thought it'd be good to include it here. That is going to be airing on NASA TV uh, November 16th. That's Tuesday at 2 p.m. So right before our show comes out. So go listen to somebody who actually knows what they're talking about doing unscripted conversations about space with uh, interviews and then come listen to our uh, garbage heap of a show, which tries to do the same thing, except we don't know what we're talking about. If the show is not out in time, which it probably won't be, um, then I'm sure it's going to be on reruns because uh, like NASA TV does do that a lot, right? So yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure that NASA Edge comes on probably like a couple they're, times a they're day. They're all archived on YouTube as well, so you can have it on demand. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, yeah. So that's even better. Just watch it on YouTube. That's kind of how I watch everything that has to do with NASA TV, especially since I don't really own a TV or yeah. if I do, I wouldn't care to look at it anyway. All right. So those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And so with that, uh, let's do it with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. This week, I'd like to give a special shout out to Delta. V, Kchat, Deathkin, Colin, uh, Mike the Wonder Idiot, <laughs> and Chris, aka Sty Garfield, uh, for joining us live. And if you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen, or visit theorbitalmechanics.com/support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. And you can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're orbital podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at the orbital mechanics.com so that's it we will see you next time on orbit until then later bye everybody